Welcome to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Bethany Branch Library on March 9, 2018. Lisa from Isley Branch Library discusses a selection of books she's read recently, mainly about theater. I'm Lisa Voss, if you've never, because I see some new faces, and I work at Isley Library, and I actually helped start this group. So I'm, and I'm still running around kicking, so every once in a while I come back. Um, a few couple months ago, someone came in and, and donated a, a big box of books on Broadway, um, the history of Broadway and the history and, and film history. And I collect um, books on Hollywood history from the golden age of Hollywood. And I pretty much watch only movies from that time because <laughs> everything after about, well, I go into the 1990s. Everything after that, I don't, you know. Eh. So I was so excited to see this box of books, and we sold most of them on our little book nook, but I did buy a couple for myself, and I kind of, it started me off on this little tangent, and I started looking at what we had in the collection on Broadway history, but I thought, well, that is a good, a good theme, because everyone has seen, you know, at least one play, either live or, you know, you've seen the movie version, or I love our collection is excellent, especially if you go down to Poly, the Poly Music Library at Bennett Martin. If you're ever downtown, they have a terrific collection, but I just have them sent out to Isley. So I brought one of the books that I, I guess I'll start with. I'm going to go out of order because these are in alphabetical order. Is that okay? Does that drive everybody crazy? doesn't drive me crazy. One of one of the books that really kind of I've enjoyed reading recently um, is *The Girls of Murder City* by Douglas Perry. Has anyone read this one? And this is about the real life women behind the musical *Chicago*. Oh, so and the lawyers and everything. And it's it's called *Fame, Lust, and the Beautiful Killers Who Inspired Chicago*. And it is so good. I am reading it the second time through because I love it so much. And and so you have these these women who were the the models for Velma Kelly and you know all the people in the movie, um, and they really there really was kind of an unspoken rule in the courtrooms of Chicago at the in the twenties in the teens and twenties you could not convict an attractive woman of murder they just they would always be acquitted. And it's, it was kind of a, a holdover of the Victorian idea that, that women just, they, they're just the, you know, weaker sex and they really don't, they get overcome by their passions, they can't help themselves. And also because the courts were, were crooked and you had these really great lawyers. But the other big story of, of these murders and these murderous, murderesses, as they're called, is the, the story of the journalists who covered them. And at the time, you know, we think there's a sense of journalistic, you know, objectivity that you're supposed to cover your subject with some objectivity. But they would go and they would sit in the cells with these women. And so they had these young women journalists who, had, who were being hired by the, at the newspapers because they could go and get close to these you know, women on who were waiting on death row essentially. So they would be in their cells with them. They would bring them cigarettes. You know, these reporters, and and they would befriend them. And then, of course, they would run um, down to their their offices and bang out this copy. 
you know, just, it's so interesting because you have these journalists who are just as, you know, shifty and underhanded in their, in their, in their tactics as these women who are on trial because many of these women were admittedly guilty. I mean, you, you remember in the movie, Renee right. Zellweger's character, she, you know, everyone knew what, what she did. But he deserved it. But, but he, oh, had it com- he had it coming, that That's song. Right. He had it coming. You know, I and, and, and you love that. And, you know, you have to read the book and decide, did, did they have it coming, these men? And, um, the, but the, of course they did. <laughs> the, and the, there's, this is um, Beulah Annan. And she's the uh, model for the Renee Zellweger character in the oh, movie. Oh. And she is very pretty. She's beautiful. And the prettier you were, the less guilty you were, of course. <laughs> and, and then the other one is um, Belva. And I can never say her name. Her last name is, oh, I can't remember it. But, and this, this is the um, Catherine Zeta-Jones character is based on Belva. Oh. Who was and she was the society, the socialite killer, the society uh-huh. killer, and she's there in her beautiful hat. And so you would have these, you would have these stories that these journalists would write about the trial and how it was proceeding and how the, and then they would like give a fashion report on her beautiful hats and because she had <laughs> Belva Gertner was- and because she had someone bringing her, you know all of her clothes and she had married a, a millionaire um, but she killed divorced him and killed her lover so it is such a good show or good book and so that kind of ties in and I thought oh I'm going to try to find out more about the musical and how in the movie oh. and how it came into being musical. but Wonderful. so and then this is a picture of Beulah on the cover and she's just very glamorous and very beautiful but the original play was written, the Broadway musical was written by Candor and Ebb, and they, of course, did so many great shows. They did cabaret. So um, I went down and found Colored Lights, 40 Years of Words, Music, Showbiz, Collaboration, and All, and all That Jazz. And they're, they're most known for those two musicals, but they worked, these two gentlemen worked together for 40 years. And I and I loved reading the story of how they they had two very different backgrounds. One of them was from Kansas City. Um, He was a Midwestern boy. They're both from Jewish backgrounds, so they had that you know kind of in common that cultural link. But um, he was really laid back, and 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 Candor was very laid back, very um, Midwestern, friendly, open, very warm. And then Ebb was very, you know, a New York boy, and he was cynical and just your typical New Yorker, and had the really strong accent and and um, had a quick temper. I guess it's, you know, if you think of a New York person, we think stereotypically, but but they they found a way to work together, and they produced all these amazing musicals and wrote all these songs. And I got about a third of the way through that book, but I loved reading about their collaborative process and how one of them was. You know, a lot of times when you read in these books, the, there is a lot of conflict in Broadway musical composition between the lyric writers and the, the music writers. And so you often have contentious relationships between lyricists and the composers, the music composers. And that you read a lot about in these books of famous feuds and, and these big blow-ups where they are under deadline and the, the 
man who man or woman who's composing the music is at the keyboard and and the lyricist is across the room and they're throwing things and yelling at each other you know and and they one of them storms out and that you read time and time again but candor and ebb never had that throughout these books they are interviewed frequently and everyone always says is it true that you never fought and they say yep it's true we've never had a fight they're my favorite writing team even though you know, I maybe love some of the other musicals I read about better. I just love their relationship. So, and I know I have the book here somewhere. It may have fallen out in the car. This, and then another relationship that I loved reading about, and I this book is so fun. It's really hard to put down. And these are names that you you probably have never heard, but. Uh, Joan Kramer and David Healy, and they wrote this book together called In the Company of Legends. And they have, I think, a fantastic job, and I wish I had could do this job for a while. They have put together a lot of the profiles that you see of famous actors and actresses of the stage and screen. So they have done profiles of Katherine Hepburn, of Fred Astaire, of Cary Grant. So you know you watch PBS and they have those specials on someone, they do a retrospective on their life. And these two people got to do a lot of this work behind the scenes. So they got to interview them and put together, produce the, the specials. And every one that they highlight is just so fascinating. And but but they had to work so hard to get some of these interviews. Like the Katherine Hepburn chapter, I I keep going back and reading again and again because she and then Cary Grant, these all of them, you know, were stars of the the screen and the stage. I mean, they had Broadway ties, almost all of them too. But they, when TV came along, people today forget that it was a real step down to do television. And if you were now, everybody wants a TV series. But the, you know, back then, if you were a movie star or a Broadway star, you did not do TV unless it was a cameo appearance, and you were very, very picky. But some of the really smart ones did. Yeah, some of the smart ones got into it and and had a longer career because of it. And eventually, many of them came around and said, "This is the way of the, of the future." But Catherine Hepburn. Even Jimmy Stewart, who did participate in a lot of television, they had ironclad writers on their contract that said, we will not appear in, you know, in a television special or do a profile because they ostensibly would say, well, we don't... They feared the competition. Yeah, we don't want to favor one network over another. You know, we don't want to... Because if we... Their stock answer was, if we do one television interview or program, we'll have to do them all. They were competing against themselves, mm-hmm. you know, essentially, and and it, it took a long time for that stigma of of doing TV because you were, I think you were essentially um, betraying your fellow actors who were still on the screen. So there's a lot; it's complicated, but they were such a great team, Joan and David. And she was a ballet dancer. She had a dance background and a stage background, and he was essentially a television producer from the get go. So, and he's very British. He's, he is from Yorkshire. So it's fun to read how they would strategize yeah. who is going to talk to whom. And so, of course, if they had someone who they thought would be impressed by his British accent, they would send him to talk to them or he would call. But if they thought, oh, Joan's dance background will, will impress them. You know, she's got that Broadway stage connection. We'll have her do the contact. But I can't believe how they 
managed to finesse some of these stars into participating. And it is so interesting. But the one about Katherine Hepburn, she initially said, absolutely not. I will not do this do this oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. documentary and you know no, 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 yada yada but they they would get them talking about their memories and they would draw these stars out by saying well you know we were talking to so and so about you and they said and then immediately the star would be well I, that's not how it happened you know <laughs> or you should contact so and so because they could tell you the real story so very very uh, savvy at getting the stars to cooperate and it's called in the company of legends and it, they really were in absolute legends a fascinating book um it's so good this this is another one i've really been in, i haven't enjoyed and i've picked it up and you can just pick chapters out of this um it's the surprising backstage stories of broadway's most remarkable songs it's oh. called showstoppers so and it's by gerald knockman it is so good and i what i've been doing is when they talk about a song like here's the king and i shall we dance oh yeah and it's just all about how this came how this song was written how it got into the the show how it was produced how they decided to stage it the costumes and when a music man the 76 trombones they also talk about um the opening number that uh they sang the rock island i think it's I can't remember, but it's the one when they're all on the train. Um, but each song, what I've been doing, here's from Gypsy, the Ethel Merman's, a lot of her songs from Gypsy are in here. But I've been going online and going on to YouTube and calling up the, the performances of the songs because a lot of them are online. So as I'm reading the book, I, if I can, I'll find a performance of the song oh, that they're yeah, talking about. It. And it's just been so much fun. Now... Can you sing? Can I sing? Maybe you could sing. <laughs> <laughs> There's no business like show business. Um, I, I was, I was. Ethel Burmey, you just have to be loud. I know. You have to be, I don't, I was in a lot of musical theater. I did, I did star as Dolly in Hello Dolly oh, at Pius. Oh. I've been in Nonsense. I've been in Annie Get Your Gun. I've been in Oklahoma. Who were you in Nonsense? I was Sister Hubert, the oh, novice yeah, mistress. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that was okay. fun. But yes, yeah, so I don't know if I can sing or not, but I do get cast in the musicals now and that. I have been in, I've done musical theater and that also makes it extra fun. But the person that I, I didn't realize how essential Ethel Merman was to the musical theater in her time. I didn't realize all of the roles that she originated well, no, you're in. Too young. You know, and <laughs> even though I'm interested in that era, I just didn't get her stardom until I read these books. And she's just a huge personality. Yeah. And Liza Minnelli, you wow. know, oh, we she's kind of a almost a caricature in her later years, but just all the roles that she played and like as, again someone that was you could not duplicate her and the story the candor and ebb book which i swear i have somewhere they go into great detail about the production of cabaret how she liza Minnelli was considered difficult in the beginning because her mother was always around and it really wasn't liza that was the problem it was judy and that she would be there and cause all these trouble all this trouble and you know, and, and all this drama. And so she would lose roles because of her mother, and which I never thought about that, but it's true. I mean, they would just look at, we don't want the, 
the drama. But eventually, her talent was so great they had to cast her. But. I think she and Joel Gray won an Academy Award for that. So because so often people think of cabaret as fun or just you know all music and dance. That's a lot of dark. It's very dark because of World War II. Yes, and the Nazis. Well, they talk about Joel Gray. There's a lot of a lot written in these books about Joel Gray's creation of the MC character in Cabaret. Oh, and he, and that no one could ever do it like he did because um, Kander and Ebb uh, were going to portray him as just a regular MC and they were going to have different people up there doing little skits, little scenes in the beginning. And they went to a club in the 50s in Berlin and saw this uh, midget, the little person, um, who was playing the role of an MC in a seedy cabaret and they watched him and they were like this is what we want we want this over the top kind of creepy portrayal but Joel Grey has since said I played that role I played that character as an actual progression from the Weimar Republic into the beginning of the Nazi regime he said I was portraying that in that part as the personification of that. And so now that I know that, and I went back and watched uh, on YouTube <laughs> um, a clip of him in the original Broadway production, and you can really see what he's, how he's doing that. And so reading these books has really increased my enjoyment of, or understanding of, and understanding of the parts. And then one of my very, very favorite musicals and many people's oh, favorite yeah. is Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. I love oh, it so much. It's so good. And of course, we're familiar with Tevier in the role, and Zero Mustel did it originally. Um, but this is just a book about how it got made, and and you know the background and all of the cultural background behind it. And of course, it was based on the the writings of Shalom Aleichem, and which was the pen name of for the writer who wrote the different different stories about life in the shtetl, in the Jewish shtetl before all the pogroms. And yeah, it is really a great story. And it's you think that, you think you know, we all know the production and we, most of us probably know someone that's been in it because it remains extremely popular as a production, because you have lots of parts. <laughs> well, really. and I defy anybody to listen to Sunrise and not cry and, and, and not tear up. And I love Prima Sarah, the, the, yes, the dream. Yes, 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 yes. I love that yeah. sequence. Yeah. The music is and the, gorgeous. And the, oh. the um, wonder of wonder, miracles of miracles. I just love the love stories. Well, I love favorite, the love stories. If I were a rich man, and that there is no other hand, you know, and he's yeah. trying to, it just has so many memorable scenes. But I didn't realize all everything that went into making it and bringing it to the stage and how it evolved. So this is just like a biography of this musical. Well, and then I have some of my favorite plays that I have done are were written by Kaufman and Hart. Ah. Um, and I really enjoyed being in um, You Can't Take It With You. That was, of all my non-musical roles, that was my favorite that I did in a play. Because I, I, I completely just worship <laughs> the writing ability of Moss Hart. And he was with several different partners. But, of course, Kaufman and Hart, I think people don't realize how many plays they wrote. But they were a great team. Again, another team that 
Yeah, um, but I, uh, my understanding and then Rogers is that they did fight. They did fight, yes. Kaufman was really I'm hard to get along with. He was I'm very hard to get along with. And, and, and then there was Rogers and Hart, too. And, of course, yeah. then Rogers and Hammerstein. Yeah. But um, Moss Hart was just a, a, a really great playwright. He just had a way with, with words, and, and he really could put, he could create amazing characters. They, they, as a team, created these amazing characters. So Act One is his autobiography, and it's considered the greatest autobiography ever written by a playwright. I don't know about that. I, it is terrific. But one of the reasons this is fun to read is because later on, everyone, nearly everyone associated with this book that he talks about came out and said, that is not how this happened. This is not true. He is making this up. So he, he's very candid. He tells it like it is about himself most of all. It is a gripping story. He came from very humble, humble beginnings. And uh, he, he talks about his first, his first uh, sighting of Broadway. He knew he wanted to be, to be on Broadway, but he had never been there. He just knew that everyone that went there was happy when they came back. Everyone that went to see a Broadway play, a Broadway show, was happy when they came back. So he thought this must be a great place. So he got a job in a music store. And his first opportunity, his parents would not let him go. He was 12 years old, and his parents would not let him go. He was from where? He was from the Bronx, or, okay. or and so, or was he in Manhattan? He was in one of. The, he but was from he New, York. New York. He was in New York City, okay. but he could not go to uh, up to Broadway by himself. So one day, his the music store owner said, "I'm going to send you Moss. I need you to run uptown and get some sheet music for me." And it, and their offices are on Broadway. Do you think your mother would allow you to go? And he said, "Oh, of course, sir. Of course, my mother has a problem." So he said, "Here's your subway fare. Go." So Moss Hart runs to the subway, takes a different route, so he doesn't go by his house, oh. his apartment building, because his mother's probably out on the stoop gossiping with the other moms. So he takes a different route, and he goes running for the subway, and he jumps on, and he gets uptown, and he jumps off, and he's like, here it is, my chance to see Broadway. And it's wall-to-wall people, and they're throwing confetti, and everyone is singing, and there's just this huge crowd, and it's exactly how he's always pictured it. And then he realizes that he can't get anywhere, and it's like he can't get through the crowd, and he asks someone, what's happening? And he said, well, we're waiting for the election results. Um, it was either Woodrow Wilson or the, his opponent was going to win the elections. They were waiting for the announcement. Everyone had confetti and, and, things, to, and you know, things to celebrate no matter who their candidate was. They were prepared. So he thought this was how Broadway was every day. But no, it was, it was just the, the election was, was about to be, results were about to be announced. So his first glimpse of Broadway was, was very unrealistic. But he just, it is a really great, it's a really great autobiography because he is a great writer. And you can see why his plays are so terrific. And it is, I would say it is one of the top five celebrity autobiographies I've ever read. I mean, not just playwrights, not just Broadway. It's just a really good book. And yet he, he makes it all come alive, you know. And so it is, most people include it in lists of the best celebrity autobiographies written. And it is terrific. And it does take you right back to, you know, you, it, he just conjures up this lost world and talks about his process. And he talks about fighting with, you know, with his partners and <laughs> fighting for, because they're fighting for their vision. You know, it's not just that they're, 
they fight because they're under pressure. A lot of these writing teams, they fight because that's just how they are, because they're creative people. But, but a lot of times they're fighting because they, they really believe in their words or their music, and they don't want to give up. Um, and then this is by Jack Vertel, and he's a producer. He's a producer and an impresario, I guess, is a great word for he got He definitely got a lot of shows to Broadway, and he formed a production company with some of his partners, and they brought a lot of shows to the stage. Um, but I really enjoy, and he's won Pulitzer Prizes, and he was involved in Angels in America, City of Angels, all kinds of just... Smokey Joe's Cafe, all kinds of things that were later shows that he himself produced, but but he also had a hand in a lot of earlier, more big name musicals. But this is the secret life of the American musical, how Broadway shows are built. And this is where he's going more into how they decide, you know, what the set looks like, who who's going to be the production team, who's gonna provide the money. It's more. It's not as much the artistic side, although that is in here in in great detail. But he, it's really interesting because you think none of this happens by chance. What's on the stage? You know, they. It's a small space really to be putting on these big productions, and every square inch of that stage is important, of course. You know, but he talks about how you know they have these big epic battles. Should we have a one staircase or two? Where should we put the staircase? Who should come down the staircase? Should we have a staircase at all and and how shall it be used and and everyone again is fighting for their view and of course you also have most everyone on a production is is a union member so you have all these different unions representing the different performers and the different backstage um, technical people so you have that whole battle too and you have to take that into consideration and I know that after reading a few chapters of this I was surprised that anything ever <laughs> comes to the stage and he has a whole chapter on um, on uh, Fiddler on the Roof and, he, and Tevye's Dream is one of the sequences that you mentioned, everybody mentioned Tevye's Dream, but that is the sequence that he chose to focus on for the book and he talks about Guys and Dolls is, is my favorite my favorite musical, absolutely hands down um, I was never in that, but I, I love it, and I can watch it over and over. But he talks a lot about that production, and I really enjoyed that. So if, you just, if you're curious as to why musicals look the way they do in the, in the movies and on the stage, and why the songs ended up in them, and how they're produced, this is very, very good. Does and he, he mention the Fantastics? You know, I can't remember. I haven't read, I have not read the whole book. I keep, I keep going back and reading my favorite parts over and over. I focused on the ones I liked the best first. No, he doesn't talk about that one. Okay. Yeah, just about everything else in here. That yeah. surprises me. One of the writers just died, and they were saying that he needed this song, and he sat down at the piano, and he wrote, Try to Remember Without Any Pause. Yeah, yeah. And, that, mm-hmm. and now that's the other one, Sunrise, Sunset. Yes. Try to Remember, that one is tough to listen to. Without yes, there is. And, and that was the thing I love about reading all these books is, is to see the creative process and how sometimes these songs take weeks to mm-hmm. hammer out. And it is a technical battle. You know, each note has to be 
argued over and they and they work on it and work on it and they rewrite and rewrite and then some of the songs really do get written in about 15 minutes Mm -hmm. and it does I thought you know I was wondering what is there does the durability of the song the popularity of the song did is does there seem to be uh more on one side or the other you know for instance does the long process produce more hits or does the immediate lightning bolt of creativity and I think it's 50-50. 50-50. I don't think you can really say, but some of yeah, some of the songs I was reading about that they they would say, oh, you know, this isn't working, and they go out to to lunch and have a couple of martinis or four and drink or four. Helps. Yes, <laughs> well, and it also it helps, and then it also ruins everything. And so much of what happens in these books that is so interesting to me. What's so interesting is that is the ego thing and how uh, oh, how yeah. you just like. A producer's toughest job is not always getting the the money or just the physical production of the play. It's handle, of course, it's handling all the egos, and how and how they have these little tricks. Like in the um, the one about the legends and the company of legends, it's a good example. How they have these little tricks to get these actors, actresses, writers, you know, um, musicians to fall into line. Like there's a story about. Um, Catherine Hepburn in one of the books and how when she was asked to do um, The Lion in Winter uh, with uh, yeah so such a great movie but they wanted her to at one point be in front of her mirror and it's a very powerful scene with her hair down where you saw Eleanor of Aquitaine in private like what and she's looking at herself in this mirror and and it's you know I'm looking at her face has how it's aged and thinking about her life and she said no I never appear on camera with my hair down I will not do it I won't do the scene I have to have my hair up and the director is saying but but you but you have to have you're in your own private apartments this is about you facing yourself you know without all of your your outer you know armor and we it's very important you have to look vulnerable and she's like I won't do it so they had a standoff for three days where she refused to do the scene and the director said, I, okay, I'm, you know, we're shutting down production because it's that important to me. So eventually the hairstylist on the, the show was an old friend of hers and she always insisted on him being on a show if she could get him, whether it was a movie or a play or whatever she was doing. And he went to her and he said, Catherine, Kate, let's just let's look at you with your hair down let's just try it so he of course is a genius with her and knew exactly how to make her look good so he fussed with her hair and he took it down and he you know did some things to it and then he turned the mirror around and he said you look great you look beautiful and she did she was happy with it and 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 she said okay I'll do it so she sent a (laughs) bottle of champagne and a note to the director and said I'm ready to do the scene. <laughs> so that to me is, is was was just a nugget that I got. I really enjoyed. It's also bribery. It is. <laughs> and it just but there's all kinds of stories like that in these books. You just you just think, wow. And it must have been so hard to work with these stars, but so rewarding. And then we were talking about kind of how name dropping and and a lot of you know getting a show made is is handling your your celebrities and who you know is very important and so um dominic dunn 
was a true Hollywood insider and a true Broadway insider. He he came from the East Coast. He was a prep product of prep school education. Um, his family is very much part of the East Coast <laughs> upper class. So he grew up around Broadway, and he grew up around Broadway stars, but then eventually went out to Hollywood and was a film writer and just a writer, a great mm-hmm. writer. Um, and he knew everyone, just knew everybody. So this book is The Way We Lived Then, Recollections of a Well-Known Name Dropper. And I've, again, I've read this book multiple times <laughs> because he just does such a great job of creating, recreating this time in, his, in you know, the 40s, 50s, and into the 60s when his life fell apart because of substance abuse and his addictions and his, he, w- he went bankrupt. But the, but the way that his... Yes, and then Dominique was killed. His daughter Dominique was killed by a, a stalker. Um, and his Griffin, his son, has had a, a good career. But and then he had a son, Alex. But um, it's just the story of how their lifestyle was so amazing, and I, I, it has wonderful pictures and all kinds of pictures of people that you know, just household names. But then people you may not know so well but it's it is a terrific read and and heartbreaking too it's just heartbreaking but Hollywood was it's not that big then. no I mean, everybody knew everybody, everybody. everybody yeah and and people didn't live people had to work very hard in the movies you know your mm-hmm. your um, process your creative process is very different in making a film than it is make, doing a play because you know you I'm sure you've heard about this or maybe experienced it but you have to sit on the set all day until it's your your time to work and oh, they the light has to be perfect and you know and uh, and then you have to be ready to go so you you have to be very disciplined you have to be good at kind of biding your time and you can't stay up late and party because you have a 6 a.m call and you have to be on the set in makeup in costume at 6 a.m so well they still do but if you want to be at your best you you know, you really can't. Then it ends up on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. But but when they did have time to party, they really lived it up. And it's a it's a really good book. And again, it is sad, but worth reading to just to see how Hollywood and Broadway and film and stage kind of how it was then. And this one again is is a book of Broadway anecdotes by Ken Bloom called Show and Tell. And there's just all kinds of terrific things in here about every, people I've never heard of, and, and of course, again, household names. It's hard to pick. Oh, Mae West. Oh. <laughs> I, I love her. She was amazing. <laughs> um, it should be no surprise to you, if you know anything about Mae West, that she invented herself. A provocateur, West liked to stir things up both on stage and off. She certainly did. She prided herself on flaunting tradition and pushing moral envelopes. Producer Leonard Stillman went to see West in her show Diamond Lil and was immediately smitten. When Stillman's mother came to town, he insisted she meet the great Mae West. And before the show, he took his mother to see West backstage. I would never do that. <laughs> West was charming. She discussed things like cooking and keeping house, subjects dear to the heart of someone like Mrs. Stillman. West had Stillman's mother sit next to her at the dressing table while she put on her makeup for the evening show. It was a remarkable visit. Silman's mother was speechless as they left the dressing room, not because the great Mae West treated her so kindly, but because all through the interview, Mae West was naked from the waist <laughs> up. <laughs> I love that story. Now, today, there'd be sexual harassment. I know. But it's just, 
it encompasses her, you know, completely. And um, I, I love that story. There's another one in here about Tallulah Bankhead that I can't read. That, oh my word! But she was something else. You could do. I could. You could do a whole book. And there are books written about her. Well, but I can remember when Tallulah Bankhead would be like a Johnny Carson. Right. Guest. Yeah, she was a perennial talk yeah. show favorite. Yeah. And she was in, she did radio. People don't realize, but she did radio. She did Broadway. She did film. She did television. She was in, she was everywhere. And she was very naughty. She liked to shock people. No, these pictures are fabulous. They are. It's such a good book. Um, I have two that are uh, not exactly, not about really Hollywood, but I just love them. They're about interest, strong, interesting women. Um, and this is by Betty Hallbright called I'll Drink to That. And, uh-huh. and um, it, life, a life in style with a twist. We start the story. She's a young socialite. Her family's very wealthy. And she grows up and is expected to marry well and just look good. And that's pretty much all she wants to do. Um, but uh, she, she meets a charming, dashing man who she falls in love with. They marry. They have a whirlwind courtship and a dream wedding. And, you know, not too far into the marriage, she realizes that he's a serial philanderer um, and that he really doesn't, you know, he doesn't expect anything of her but to not say anything about what he's doing and to look good and on his arm. And ah. she, she does her best to, to fill her days, but she's pretty, pretty bored. And eventually they separate, they divorce, and she has, she's, her kids are grown and she has to decide what to do with her life. But the one thing that Betty has always had is incredible style. She's always helping her friends pick out their wardrobes and decorate their homes, and she's got a really good eye. So she um, is asked by Bergdorf Goodman to be the very first that we know of personal shopper. So she kind of invented the personal shopper role. And, and And you think, well, that sounds kind of, you know, floofy, but... She has a lot to say about about style and inventing yourself, and and she defends. You know, she she will talk to these women, and they'll say, "I, you know, I need this. I need to look like this. I need to look like that." And she'll say, "No, you don't. You you need to dress simply. You need to love the way you look. You need to love what you wear." And it doesn't matter. She she will often talk people out of buying very expensive <laughs> things that don't suit them. Because, you know, which her bosses at first got really angry at her for. But she would say, I don't want to send this woman home in this, this $5,000 dress. And it looks terrible on her. Because she's, you know, it's going to reflect badly on me and, and the store that we yeah. sent someone, someone out in something terrible. I'd rather she go home in a $250 dress, which still sounds expensive to me, um, <laughs> and look great and, yeah. love, and love herself. And so that's her, I love her philosophy. And she just, she really had a... She had a complete and total, you know, she hit rock bottom emotionally and reinvented herself. So it's a, it's a fun read. And she has dressed both celebrities and big names and then just average women that come to see her in New York. So and she's still, uh, to my knowledge, still alive. And I thought I read still working. So And, and this one I just threw in because it's so interesting. Um, most people have, have, have heard about the OK Corral, the... Uh, the shoot out at the OK Corral and many people don't realize though that Wyatt Earp was married and was um, with the same woman for 40 years and that she she was present at the OK Corral and her name is Josephine Marcus Earp and I had never heard of her until this book came across 
the desk at work a few months ago and I picked it up and thought, oh my gosh, I had no idea. And she was a beautiful young woman. Here wow. she's, she's kind of woo woo. Oh yeah. Um, they, they had pictures like that back there. Yeah. And, and she was very beautiful, um, very headstrong, very, did not want a tradition. She was the child of a Polish Jewish immigrant family and they moved to San Francisco from New York and they were, you know, they were not well off, but they, they did okay. She was comfortable and they were getting ready to marry her off and she was 18 and she thought, I don't want to do this. I want, I want adventure. So she, um, headed to Tombstone, Arizona. She eventually did get engaged to a man to make her parents happy, but she was going to meet him in Tombstone and they were going to live in the West and she chose him. But on the way there, some things happen, and she ends up with Wyatt Earp. And so she was there at the OK Corral. She did witness the shootout. And um, the author, Ann Kirshner, also interweaves her own story and, and kind of how she identifies with Josephine. And it's, it's an interesting – and then she tells how she had tracked her down and how hard it was to find information about her. Yeah, but then the, they retired to San Francisco. Yes. And lived a very, very docile life. Yes, they did. <laughs> he ended up, you know, it is, that's funny too, that, that they ended up having this really conventional life after the wild, you know, just the, all the events that they were part of in their u- younger years. That's why I, lo- I love books like this, and I'm so glad she wrote this book. And there's their tombstone, they're buried ah. next to each other. Wyatt and Josephine. And then just really, really briefly, there's some fiction down there, and these are just fiction books I've read recently that I loved. Um, Queen of the Night, Alexander Chi, is about an opera singer in um, Paris during the one of the uprisings, one of the Napoleons, when they had upheaval. She, and it's cast against the this all of this political upheaval, and she is a star of the, the Paris stage. But it's just fascinating how she invents herself. She starts out as a, a prostitute and sort of reinvents herself again and gets into opera and becomes this mega star. But all about her, the discipline it takes to to do this job and to stay on top. And it was really good. Queen of the night. Um, Love and other constellation prizes. Has anyone that? By Jamie Ford. He wrote the hotel at the corner of Bitter and Sweet oh, and no. the songs of Willow Frost. And uh, it is really good. It's it's a um, Jamie Ford, Jamie Ford yeah, right. and it's set against the backdrop of the Seattle World's Fair in the '60s. But then there was a forgotten World's Fair that happened in the teens, in like 1916, in Seattle. They also right. had another fair, mm-hmm. um, but most people don't know anything about it. It's not one of the better known World's Fairs. And how it starts is we meet Ernest Young, who is an orphan. Um, he has come here from China. He was kidnapped. He was sold by his family to uh, some men that came over to, you know, buy people for the. Uh, it was slavery, basically, um, and bring them to America and then mm. sell them again. So um, he survives that and he becomes a raffle prize <laughs> at, <laughs> at the World's Fair. He is raffled <laughs> off. <laughs> to, uh, and I don't want to tell you too much detail because it's really interesting to see how that happens. Uh, but he becomes a raffle prize, and uh, the, the woman who, who wins him um, owns a brothel. And she is based on, the character is based on an actual woman from uh, Seattle who ran an enlightened 
parlor house and she she called her girls her Gibson girls and she she made sure that they had medical care she educated them she was very strict with them and a lot of them she married off eventually to into respectable homes so it's a really really great book but it's what all is an enlightened <laughs> just that's kind of how she was an enlightened madam because she was you know not cruel to them but oh. she's she's a it's an interesting book but it's about um Ernest's love story uh with with two of the women he young women girls he meets in the house really good Tana French the Dublin murder squad books if each one has different characters and then the lost girls by Heather Young I listened to this um, I really recommend, if you can, if you like to listen to books, it's so good to listen to. It's the story of a young woman with two daughters who meets a man that she thinks is going to, to save her life, you know, and be a father for them after their father leaves her. And um, they have a what she thinks is a great relationship. And then she inherits some property from an aunt. There's just a whole story about her mother was kind of a vagabond. They never settled anywhere long. Um, and so this young woman goes back to claim her property and realizes that the man she's been with is, is not good for her um, and is, is a, a threat to her. And so it's just all about, at the same time, there's an old murder mystery or old death that happened that surrounds this property. And it also deals with, uh, so there's a, flat, there's a lot of flashbacks. It goes back and forth in time. So if you don't like books that do that, I know many people don't, but that is a key element of this book, so I will warn you. It's one of those flashback books. I, like, I liked it a lot. I thought it worked really well. So it has a big twist ending, which I won't tell you about. But <laughs> so I, can't, I won't tell you because I like it, and I don't want to ruin it for you. That's nice of you. Okay, I got, I got through all of them, and I wish I knew where that darn book is. That really good one. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. If you would like to comment on this or any of our podcasts, you can do so by visiting our podcast page at lincolnlibraries.org slash podcasts, where you can also download our podcasting theme music for use as your ringtone. You can become a fan of our podcasts by searching for Lincoln City Libraries Podcasts on Facebook.